All right, looks like we're about at time. So we'll go ahead and get back into our study of Zechariah. We'll do the opening invocation and the prayer, and then we'll talk about where we're going to go after we get done with the minor prophets. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, so before we get into Zechariah, we had a number of suggestions for different books once we get through the Minor Prophets. Talking to the pastor, thinking it over, and seeing how much time we have left here, we decided the best one would be Ezekiel. So we're going to move on to that after we get done with the Minor Prophets. So another wonderful prophet. There are like 40-something chapters, though, of the book. So we're going to be moving at a pretty good pace. But we'll still be pretty consistent with the pace that we've been going on through here. But I think it'll just be a marvelous study. Ezekiel's phenomenal. You got some more colorful language that we'll sort through and some great visions we'll have to wrestle with. So it'll be a good challenge, even for me as well, having to wrestle with those to then be able to try to give the correct interpretation to you guys. So we'll see how that goes, but looking forward to the study. So that's where I think we're going to be going. We'll probably have, we may finish up Zechariah this week. We'll see how it goes. We've got chapter 14 to get through. And then Malachi, which is four chapters. So that'll probably be just next week. We may have a little bit of bleed over on this week or next. But so the next couple of weeks, we'll be moving on to Ezekiel after that. But we've still got a few more chapters of Zechariah and then Malachi to get through. So we left off in chapter 10, verse 4 of Zechariah. Remember, we left off with a cornerstone which was a pretty obvious motif for Christ, and then from him, the tent peg. So we talked about Jael, remember, she took the tent peg and and killed the man. It was Sisera, killed him with the tent peg, just a phenomenal story there. But then we talked about how that could be an allusion to Christ. Cornerstone, obvious, that one's pretty easy, Christ as our cornerstone. New Testament says as much. But for the tent peg, it's kind of a little bit more of a stretch, but... If we turn to Isaiah 33, you don't all have to turn there. You're welcome to if you want, but just reading one verse real quick. Isaiah 33, 20 says, Behold, Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent, whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. So we have the illusion of Jerusalem being this tent with unmovable stakes in there, or tent pegs, and little stakes you put to secure down the tent. So Christ being the one who holds us down on this firm foundation, that type of language. So we have some of that imagery, again, a little bit of a looser connection to Christ, but still, nonetheless, I would say, would be pointing to him. From him, the battle bow... Now, we can't help but think back to Genesis chapter 9 with the flood. And after the flood, you have the bow in the sky, the rainbow. Same word is used here. So this bow that was used for destruction is now put up in the sky. 
the Lord is kind of putting his weapon away for all to see then that promise that he will no longer send another flood of destruction. So kind of laying that weapon up on the mantle or whatever. So it's a weapon of defense. So for us, who is our battle bow, is a great defense for us that he has this weapon. But do we have to fear that battle bow, his people? No. For those who are at peace with God, it's great news that he has this battle bow ready to defend us, but it's no harm to us who are at peace with God here. So that battle bow, that weapon, from him, every ruler, all of them together. Any questions on those different pictures here? We're kind of picking up mid-argument, but didn't want to do too much over a refresher just for the sake of time. We're in this section of this restoration for Judah and Israel. So we have some marvelous imagery of what this new restoration will be like. And we'll see that more and more as we go through the rest of Zechariah here. This imagery of restoration and speaking more than just the physical Jerusalem, but rather Jerusalem proper, a.k.a. the church, the people of God. So we'll see that more as we go through Zechariah. Main questions on the tent peg, the battle bow, any of that? All right, verse 5. They shall be like mighty men in battle, trampling the foe in the mud of the streets. They shall fight because the Lord is with them, and they shall put to shame the riders on horses. So again, here we're speaking about the people of God being as these mighty men in battle. We'll talk about that more as we get through here. He develops this image of God's people being put to work in this great and final battle. I will strengthen the house of Judah. I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them. So we have, I will, I will, I will. The Lord's doing all this work. And so the house of Judah, the house of Joseph, all these names being synonymous with the people of God. They're used interchangeably all throughout the prophets. Just, again, still speaking of the same, same people of God here. And they shall be as though I had not rejected them. So this restoration, this restoration that will come, it will be so great that it will be as though I had not rejected them. They had not turned my back on them, let them fall into captivity, this great and wonderful time that will come. It will just wipe their memory almost. That it will be as though I never rejected them. Just this abounding peace that will be here. For I am the Lord... For I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. Then Ephraim shall, be, shall become like a mighty warrior, still synonymous, Judah, Joseph, not getting into all the weeds there, but still the people of God shall become like a mighty warrior, and their hearts shall be glad as with wine. Their children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. So here we get a little bit of a hint already that He's not speaking about some earthly battle, some temporal battle here. Because these warriors that are ready for battle, these mighty warriors, it says their hearts shall be glad with wine. Well, as soldiers are getting ready for battle, are they going to be, their hearts gladdened? Are they going to be drinking all this wine and rejoicing and having a great feast? No. They're going to be 
very serious, let's get down to business for this battle that lies ahead. But rather here, it's the victory's already been won. It's now this rejoicing that we have. So a little bit of a hint here already that there isn't a temporal battle that he is speaking of, that it's this greater cosmic battle, if you will, between the people of God and the powers and principalities of darkness here. I will whistle for them and gather them in, for I have redeemed them. So again, this in-gathering, this restoration. And they shall be as many as they were before. Though I scatter them among the nations, yet in far countries they shall remember me. And with their children they shall live in return. So again, we have this in-gathering back together. This redemption has already taken place, for I have redeemed them. And they shall be as many as they were before. So as they had been scattered through Babylonian captivity, the Syrians, all of that, this gathering together, this faithful yet small remnant that has gathered back together, multiplied this great abundance of people, this in-gathering from all these nations that have been scattered, all these people that have been weakened will be gathered together as this great and numerous people here. And with their children, even. So again, this in-gathering of all the people of God, even the young children coming back. I will bring them home from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria. And I will bring them to the land of Gilead and to Lebanon till there is no room for them. So we had this previously, I don't remember if it was in Zechariah, the books all kind of blend together for me at this point. But do you remember the walls of Jerusalem, the Lord speaking about how it wouldn't be enough room for them so he would have to be the wall of Jerusalem, this wall of fire, I think is how it was put. So there wouldn't be room enough in the walls of Jerusalem to contain the people of God for how numerous they would be. So the Lord himself would establish himself as that wall, as a protection. So there simply wouldn't be enough room for the great multitude of people that come from all these different and far lands. He shall pass through the sea of troubles, and strike down the waves of the sea, and all the depths of the Nile shall be dried up. All right, so this he that he is speaking of is the Lord. He shall pass through the sea of troubles. All right, put on your Old Testament hat. What, you, what event are you thinking of here? The Lord passing through these, this sea of troubles. Exodus, the Red Sea. Remember how the Lord himself in the pillar of cloud and everything passes through. He shall pass through the sea of troubles and strike down the waves of the sea. So there you can see the exodus of the Red Sea. But then you can also see that fulfilled in Christ himself. The calming of the storms, the calming of the seas. So he's striking down these waves until they are calm. So we even see that in the New Testament. The striking down of the waves. Now the depths of the Nile shall be dried up. The pride of Assyria shall be laid low, and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. I will make them strong in the Lord, and they shall walk in his name, declares the Lord. So again, this putting away, this laying low of all of the Lord's enemies here, and making his own people strong as they continue to walk in the name of the Lord. All right, so that's some restoration language. We'll get some more of that later on. I think it's in chapter 12, 
little bit and then some into lot in 14. Any questions on anything in chapter 10 or previously? All right, well, buckle up because chapter 11 is going to be a little bit of a doozy. So we'll get through it. I'll probably have some questions that we can't answer. There's going to be some unknowns here, but the general point of this text will be clear enough, even if we can't quite understand exactly what he's speaking of or when he is speaking about this. We'll try to wrestle through it and we'll lean a little bit more heavily on the study notes at the bottom and see what the commentaries say on that. So starting in chapter 11, 1, open your doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour your cedars. Wail, O Cyprus, for the cedar has fallen, for the glorious trees are ruined. Wail, oaks of Bashan, for the thick forest has been felled. The sound of the wail of the shepherds for their glory, the sound of the wail of the shepherds for their glory is ruined. The sound of the roar of the lions for the thicket of the Jordan is ruined. So here we have this speaking about of the cedars and these wooded areas of Lebanon and these other lands that we mentioned previously in this area. That was their great pride, were these great and mighty cedars, these great forests. Again, the people of God, the enemies of God, that's their great glory that they glory in of, we got all these cedars, we can export them, make some money. This is our bread and butter. This is what we are proud of. And the Lord is saying, open your doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour your cedars. Wail, O Cyprus, for the cedar is fallen and the glorious trees are ruined. So all that you are glorying in is going to be laid low, burned to nothing, cut down and felled. That's where we see in verse 3, for their glory is ruined. So all that which they trusted in, put their own glory in, is but decimated in the presence of the Lord. So we've seen this with the military might throughout the minor prophets, them putting their trust in the military, and the Lord is saying, you really want trust in that against me. We'll see how that battle goes. And so likewise with these cedars of, this is what you're putting your hope and glory in? These trees? Really? Here, let me light a little match and see how long that lasts. So, this destruction that is going to be coming for them. And then we get a rather stark shift here, which for all the times that they, the study Bible adds these headers, you would think they would Add one before verse 4, because you get into a pretty distinct section and a pretty difficult one nonetheless. I'm going to read the study note for 11, 4 to 14 there. There's a little bit of an introduction to this difficult section. It says, Parable describes how the Lord abandoned his people, the flock doomed to slaughter. These actions were not necessarily in chronological order, and likely refer to events that occurred previously in Israel's history. As with Jesus' parables, it is the overall point that is important. Symbolically, not literally, the prophet is commanded to shepherd the flock. He describes their suffering at the hands of external and internal enemies. Finally, the Lord and his prophet, whom the flock came to detest, no longer have pity on them. So they take it as a type of parable and not necessarily talking about something currently going on, but 
more likely a past event. And so he is giving this parable as kind of a recollection to them. And so we'll see that as we go through. And that's their interpretation. Some people take it more as a literal one. And then that still adds some questions that can't quite be answered. But the overall kind of consensus is some sort of parable, not quite speaking literally here. And most likely something from a past event of, especially with the Assyrians, more likely. So calling them to remember what has happened. Again, calling them to faithfulness. Had that for the text last night for our midweek service, that returning to the Lord. Same type of thing here. So we'll get into the text. Thus said the Lord my God, become shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. Those who buy them slaughter them and go unpunished. And those who sell them say, blessed be the Lord. I become rich and their own shepherds have no pity on them. So it seems to be here that the Lord is speaking to Zechariah and saying, hey, you be their shepherd. They're doomed to slaughter anyways. So you be their shepherd. I'm not going to be their shepherd anymore. After all, we know what is going to be waiting for them. Again, kind of pointing to maybe the Assyrians or Babylonians or something like that, that they're doomed to that slaughter. So, again, not quite chronological given Zechariah's time period. It would have been after the Babylonian captivity. Because remember, his whole point is to call them to start rebuilding the temple after they've come back out of the Babylonian captivity. So still, a lot of questions on this. I wish I had more answers, but alas, I don't. For I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of this land, declares the Lord. Behold, I will cause each of them to fall into the hand of his neighbor and each into the hand of his king, and they shall crush the land, and I will deliver none from their hand. So I became the shepherd of the flock, doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep traders. And I took two staffs, one I named Favor, and the other I named Union, and I tended the sheep. In one month, I destroyed the three shepherds. Don't ask me what he's referring to for the three shepherds. Your study note says that commentators have offered more than 40 different suggestions of the exact identities of these three shepherds. So we don't know, commentators don't know, and so a Lowly vicar is not going to be able to solve this great question of who these three shepherds are. But I became impatient with them, and they also detested me. So I said, I will not be your shepherd. What is to die, let it die. What is to be destroyed, let it be destroyed. Let those who are left over devour the flesh of one another. And I took my staff favor, and I broke it, annulling the covenant that I had made with all the peoples. So it was annulled on that day, and the sheep traders who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. So you have the breaking of the staff. And you watch like Queen Elizabeth's funeral. You saw that, the end of her monarchy. They, I mean, it's a little twist off thing, but they still kind of broke the staff, signifying the end of her reign. So this type of similar thing is used, imagery is used here, and still carried on today. So this breaking of the staff kind of showing the end of that. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. 
All right, so your New Testament ears are going to be perking up here. The 30 pieces of silver with Judas doesn't quite fit as a one-to-one connection, but still, nonetheless, our ears kind of perk up at that. Your study note for verse 12. Shepherds expected wages for their work. The prophet's request of the sheep traders is a bit ironic. Will you pay me for turning over the flock to destruction? That the wicked rulers were willing to give him 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave, showed how callous their hearts were. This is the same amount Judas received for betraying Jesus. So they also just kind of throw it in there for you to think about a little bit, but don't, they don't make too many connections to it. But kind of the irony there of Zechariah, the shepherd, pretty much still handing them over to destruction, still coming and saying, hey, where's my, where's my payment for this? for being the shepherd, but they still give it nonetheless. Again, confusing section, don't have a ton of answers. Wish I did more. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Stay note. For the potter, possibly a proverbial saying expressing disdain or disgust at the action of the sheep traders. And then the, for it being the house of the Lord, prophet performing this act publicly, throwing down the silver coins in the temple, just as Judas later on would do. So this disgust, this disdain for it. Again, they speak on the one page of it being a parable, and now they seem to kind of or suggest it actually happening. So even the commentators on the bottom of the study Bible don't seem quite in agreement of what's exactly going on here. They seem a little bit confused as well. Not into the potter's... I believe he put... Let's see, the reference... believe it was into the temple, Matthew 27, 5. Let's see... Twenty-seven. Let's back up to three. And when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, "I have sinned by betraying innocent blood." They said, "What is this? What is that to us? See to it yourself." And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and went and hanged himself. So then they named that place, I believe, the Potter's Field or something to that extent but him throwing it into the temple. Again, kind of blood money at this point, him throwing it away, saying, I want nothing to do with it. Chief priest saying, we don't want anything to do with it. The deed's already done, so it's your money now. So again, some kind of connection. I mean, there's some allusions, connections you can make with Judas here, but still it doesn't quite fit then with Zechariah coming and shepherding a doomed people but then Judas how that really connects with any of it it's pretty loose at best and I broke my second staff union annulling the brotherhood between Judah and Israel so we have the breaking of favor and union two big things the favor of the Lord is a big one and then union between Judah and Israel another 
Then the Lord said to me, Take once more the equipment of a foolish shepherd. For behold, I am raising up in the land a shepherd who does not care for those being destroyed, or seek the young, or heal the maimed, or nourish the healthy, but devours the flesh of the excuse me, but devours the flesh of the fat ones, tearing off even their hoofs. Great imagery and graphic imagery at that used here, but so this rising, this raising of a foolish shepherd, again, no clear indication of who that foolish leader is, but nonetheless, the Lord raising up in this land a shepherd who does not care for all these people, but rather devours them. And say no, it doesn't make any kind of claim as to who that may be. Still uncertain quite when the time period is that he's speaking this, whether it's about a past event that has already happened or a future event, it's still all unclear. So one of the most confusing parts of Zechariah, I would say, right here. He continues on, Woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. Let his arm be wholly withered, his right eye utterly blinded. So the right eye and all that kind of means to carry out their business. And so him, his mental and physical abilities, as the study note puts it. So striking those down, this worthless shepherd, just completely decimating his ability to, again, destroy and devour his, his people. So woe to that worthless shepherd. Again, don't know who it is. It was too important for us to know. Our Lord probably would have made it more clear. Probably would have been a lot more clear for the original readers of this. They'd be more in tune with what was going on during that time and everything. But some of it is lost onto us. Again, wish I had more, more clarification about this passage. But any questions on that that I may not be able to answer, but I can try. All right. So we're going to get into still a little bit of a difficult passage, not quite as bad. And then we'll get some great, great passage here at the end of chapter 12. You know, I see it in your header, him whom they have pierced. So our minds already know what he's going to be talking about there. A messianic prophecy right there. But up to that point, 12 verse 1, the burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel so again, the burden, the oracle, used elsewhere, translated differently. Concerning Israel, thus declares the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. So the Lord himself is kind of giving a basis for why they should pay attention to what he's saying. He's saying, hey, I'm about to speak. Do you remember that I stretched out the heavens, founded the earth, formed all this stuff? Yeah, you should probably pay attention to what I'm saying. You should probably trust it. I'm pretty trustworthy. Here, I created everything, so listen up. Listen to what I'm going to say here. Behold, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. 
So again, we may be thinking about the literal Jerusalem, but we'll see as he develops this further, it becomes quite obvious that he's not speaking about the physical place of Jerusalem as we get through here. But just trust me on this, and we'll see as we go through, see if Zechariah himself proves that to be the case, that it is not the literal Jerusalem. So he will make about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day I will make Jerusalem, the church, a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. So this great animosity, this great disdain for the people of God, his church, but everyone who lifts it, they're going to hurt themselves. So again, this great mighty people, the heaviest can be, they try to lift them up and, you know, destroy them. They're going to hurt their own backs. They're going to, you know, blow out their back by trying to lift up these people and destroy them. All the nations of the earth will gather against it. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. So the Lord fighting on behalf of his people, striking every horse and rider with panic and madness, where they just become utterly useless. If you see a crazy horse and someone's trying to ride it, the best rider does no good if the horse is going off another direction. So if you strike the horse with madness, you got the rider pretty much useless at that point. So the Lord is striking not even the horse, but also the rider with madness. And even with blindness at the end of verse 4. So they are blind, but the Lord will keep his eyes open. So he sees all that is going on. Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, The inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. So the people of God, they don't have strength on their own, but rather they have strength through the Lord of hosts, which remember the Lord of armies is speaking here. The Lord of hosts is the Lord of armies. So they have strength on behalf of the one who is the Lord of armies is their basis and the giver of that strength to them. Again, in complete contrast to all these nations that are going to be rising up against the people of God, they rely on their horses, their riders, all their military might, but rather for the people of God, it is the strength from the Lord that he gives to them. On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves. And he shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. So Jerusalem itself, the clan of Judah, being this flaming pot. You have it, all these sheaves and everything. Well, you have these sheaves and you have a flaming pot. Gun burn stuff down. So this devouring of everything from the right to the left. All these pagan people. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem 
may not surpass that of Judah. So in your study note for verse 7, people who lived in Judah outside the capital city of Jerusalem, where the temple was located, may have considered themselves second-class citizens, but the Lord puts them first in line for salvation. So then you see that all throughout the New Testament, the first will be last, the last first. So this evening out, this juxtaposition here of the weak will be lifted up and the mighty will be laid low here. So again, just in the Old Testament context, he's using those images for this coming day, this salvation that will come. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. So this people of God that are feeble, the feeblest among them will be like David, now be like the house of David, which is like God, like the angel of the Lord, which in the Old Testament is Christ. So this feeblest being as Christ, this lifting up, this sharing in this being sons of God, as we see elsewhere in the Old Testament. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. All right, so again, in mind, this great and final day, Jerusalem not being the physical Jerusalem, but rather the church. And we'll see that as we get into verse 1 of chapter 13 here in a minute, it becomes a lot more clear again. But our Lord himself speaks about the, his kingdom not being of this world. So the people that say, oh, it has to be you know, the physical Jerusalem, it's not, Christ himself is saying, it's not, his kingdom is not of this world. Do we have a question? So is the Lord speaking to all the people of Israel here, or Zechariah, and he tells them? Or Good question. Don't have the answer. I don't think any of us do. That's the bad thing about these prophets is it's hard to tell quite when one person is speaking, who's he's exactly speaking to. And we don't have the context here of, okay, how was the book of Zechariah originally given? Was it kind of all these different shorter oracles given to the people and then it was later compiled into this great book you know with the many proverbs being compiled into the book of proverbs or was it all written as one it's kind of hard to tell we get some of those distinctions of like at the start of chapter 12 kind of a clear chapter break so whether or not that was kind of its own separate thing that he spoke somewhere else your guess is as good as mine here. So it seems to be that it would be Zechariah, if I had to take a guess, given verse 7, speaking, and the Lord will give salvation, seems to suggest that it would be Zechariah speaking to the people. But, I mean, the Lord himself speaks that way. You know, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So he speaks that way as well. So your guess is as good as mine on that one. I do like the language in verse 8 of going before them. So we just saw that previously of the Lord going before them and the, oh, I forget the language. 
You shall pass through the sea of troubles. So again, that same type of imagery of going before them, passing through these areas. Our Lord himself taking on flesh, being tempted in every respect as we have been and yet without sin. We see that in Hebrews as well of the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, the shame and everything. My translation of that, paraphrasing, for our Lord who goes before us. So we already have one who has gone before us in all these instances. And so the victory is already ours. Now we just join with him in that battle, being like him. All right, any other questions, comments? All right, we're going to get into a fun text here of verse 10 and following. The header kind of gives it away. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, All right, so when they look on me, who is the one who was pierced? And so he's saying, when they look on me. So who's speaking right here? Our Lord is speaking. Christ himself is speaking here. So he's saying, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for, for an only child and weep bitterly over them as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shimeites by itself, and their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left, each by itself, and their wives by themselves. All right, so a lot of repetition here, but what is he getting at? So this mourning that will take place as you look on the one whom they have pierced, why are they mourning? They the, the realize what happened. They, mm. they, it was their fault. They exactly. So it's future tense. Mm-hmm. So they see what was the cause of that piercing. That they were the cause of that piercing. And so each person themselves will mourn. You're not mourning for someone else. You're not mourning on behalf of someone else. You're mourning that your own sins caused that to have to take place. As you behold the, him whom they have pierced, each of us mourn. We, bitterly, we weep bitterly over him. As we see the price that had to be paid there by the pierced Lord who died for our sake, for our sins that he must pay for. And he did so for us. And so it's why we still have the crucifix. Some churches don't like having it. It's uncomfortable. They don't want to have 
Christ on the cross there and be confronted with the price of their sin. So they like the empty cross. Maybe some nice LED lights behind it, some blue lights. It's nice and warm and comforting. We are the crucifix, front and center. Reminder of our sin, reminder of what Christ has done for us. It's a greatest sorrow as we look on it, but it's also the greatest comfort of all that our Lord is the one who paid that price for us, thus delivering to us that gift of salvation through that. So even though it's uncomfortable, we have it right there. We process with it in, process with it out. Beginning of every service, end of every service. All eyes on that as that constant reminder, constant reminder of what Christ has done for us. It's not just this empty cross there, but rather our crucified and risen Lord who is here still delivering those gifts to us. A little bit of an aside there, but that mourning that takes place as we behold him. Again, my, one of my favorite services is Good Friday that we'll have coming up here in just over a month. All right, any questions on... Actually, let me get verse, or chapter 13, verse 1. This is a really bad chapter division there, and then we'll pause there for any questions. On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. All right, so if you're thinking of a literal Jerusalem, a literal place in the Middle East, apparently on that day there's going to be a fountain that's built there. It's going to be a fountain of flowing water and everything, It's open for the house of David and to cleanse him from their sin. Right? Rather, what is he actually speaking of here? Think back to John chapter 19. Again, we have him whom they have pierced. And then we have this fountain flowing out, which then brings with it the cleansing from sin and uncleanness. We have the blood of Christ the blood and the water that flow forth from his pure side, this fountain of grace flowing from him to Jerusalem, his church, thus cleansing his church, cleansing them from their sin. That's why it's pretty obvious here that he's not speaking of a literal, physical Jerusalem, but rather Jerusalem as his church. See that throughout the New Testament as well, the New Jerusalem that will be coming down. We see that in Revelation as well. So again, against the people that would claim that this is some physical Jerusalem, this new age that will be ushered in maybe a thousand years if you want to take Revelation completely out of context there and say that that one little piece is literal as you heard Pastor talk about in the 8 o'clock class. 144,000, not literal, but the thousand years will we'll make that literal. So, all right, I'll pause there for questions and then we'll get off into the next section. Nothing, all right. So, verse two then. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And also I will remove from the land 
the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. I'll explain more about the prophets here in a second once we get through verse 4. And if anyone again prophesies, his father and mother who bore him will say to him, You shall not live, for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. On that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. He will, not be, he will not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive, but he will say, I am no prophet, I am a worker of the soil, for a man sold me in my youth. And if one asks him, what are these wounds on your back? He will say, the wounds I received in the house of my friends. So we have on this day, this last day, the Lord removing all these idols from the land, all these false gods, and removing from the land the prophets. So we may be thinking, okay, the good prophets? Are you going to be just striking them all down? No. Looking at verse 4 and following, the prophets, they will be ashamed of the vision, of his vision when he prophesies. Well, if it is a true prophet that is prophesying the word of God, are they going to be ashamed of that message that they're giving? Or are they going to be putting on a cloak to deceive or doing all these other things? No. So it's these false prophets that he is saying he is going to be striking down. Striking down these idols, striking down the false prophets to such an extent that they're going to say, nope, no, I never was a prophet. You know, never did any of that funny business there, the, being a false prophet. I was just sold in my youth and all these things. And so we have that picture of this last day that is completely wiping out of all these evil and wicked things in our land. And the Lord creates the new heavens and the new earth. Just a glorious day that we have to look forward to of this wiping away of all these false gods. You don't have to be sitting there thinking, okay, is this a false prophet? Are they actually coming in the name of the Lord? Or are they trying to lead me astray onto that wide and that wide path that leads to destruction. We just have that to look forward to, this great day where all those false prophets, all those idols, done with. We don't have to worry about that anymore. We have the Lord, the true prophet, standing in our midst. The wounds on your back, so the, any of the prophets, they probably could be you know, beaten up a little bit for coming and preaching the word of the Lord. Or even the false prophets, when they come, strike themselves on the back sometimes to make it look like they were an actual prophet who had been beaten some. And so, the wounds on your back. Now, what are those? Eh, I received it from my friends, you know, the house of my, of my friends. So, covering up all that, all their previous deception there. Stone note also puts for the... Ah, uh, where is it? I lost it there. Oh, verse 6. False prophets sometimes cut themselves hoping their God would be moved to respond. So they kind of take it that direction of being the false prophets. They would injure themselves trying to get their deaf and mute gods to respond, hoping if they hurt themselves enough, then finally they'll wake up their false gods and they'll finally answer. They'd probably be wounding themselves quite a lot before their silent false gods would ever speak. So they kind of take it that direction. There's freedom in either way. Verse 7 and following, we get language of 
the shepherd here. And here we have in mind a different shepherd, which we'll see here in just a second. Not being the evil and wicked shepherd that we saw previously, but rather have in mind Christ as our good shepherd. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me. So the Lord being at the right hand of the Father, declares the Lord of hosts, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. So that's perfectly quoted in Matthew 26, 31. Our Lord himself saying that of strike the shepherd, the sheep will be scattered, which we saw with the disciples as our Lord is crucified. What do the disciples do? Scatter. So that's why we take this shepherd as the good shepherd. I will turn my hand against the little ones and the whole land declares the Lord. Two thirds shall be cut off and perish and one third shall be left alive. So again, not necessarily a very specific, exactly two thirds of the earth will be perishing and one third will be left alive, but rather more in a general sense of the majority of the earth will perish in unbelief and this minority, this remnant will remain and be left alive. Although that third that is left alive, those who are faithful, verse 9, and I will put this third into the fire. All right, so not necessarily what we'd like to hear, but this faithful people who put into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. All right, so here we get the first Peter language that he gives of being tested, refined, gold. We have that in First Peter 1. It's a marvelous introduction there. But the people of God being refined as silver or as gold through the fire burns off all the impurities. And over time, as you suffer more and more, you get a purer and purer piece of gold as you go through these trials throughout life. So hear about that Sunday with the text from Romans 5. I'll be preaching on that. The role of suffering so we have that to look forward to, but this fire that is going to purify, not necessarily enjoyable, but we know what lies ahead and we know the purpose of that suffering. That fire is meant not to destroy, but rather to refine. And he would remove that old Adam that still clings so closely and keep drowning him daily, slowly putting him to death. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. So all in the midst of them being in the fire, they call upon the Lord, and he answers them. We call upon him in the fires, the sufferings of life, and he answers us. And he says to us, you are my people. You are my child, my baptized, place my name upon you. And we say, the Lord is my God. All right, questions on 13. We're moving at a pretty good pace, but when try to get through Zechariah, but if you have questions, we'll pause for it. We'll see if we can finish all of it. 14. Then get some even more difficult language here again, so apologies for that, but we'll get, we'll get through it. Behold, the day is coming for the Lord when the spoil... Sh- 
the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations, as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives, that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach Azal. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, Then the Lord my God will come, and the holy ones with him. So again, depiction of this last day, this great battle that is taking place. We see that in Revelation, again, apocalyptic literature, with Christ on this white horse, riding into battle. We have this dividing of the Mount of Olives, or the Yes, great division. Again, this valley that rise and you flee just as an earthquake, some great earthquake. We may have a specific date on that, but as we all kind of remember, a specific big natural disaster or something. The Lord here speaking and calling to mind this great disaster of, remember how that happened? This will be kind of like that. So they would have known, they remembered what that great event was. And then that Lord will come and the holy ones with him. So we see that of the angels. Again, we see that in Revelation. of The Lord coming with his holy angels into this battle. On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost. And there shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord. Neither day nor night, but, in, but at evening time there shall be light. So this creation of the new heavens and the new earth, where there's no light, cold, or frost, so completely different from all of our perceptions of how days go, how the seasons go. It's going to be completely outside of our, how we would normally think the days circling, the weather and everything. It's just going to be different in a unique, a unique way, it says. Neither day nor night, but... At evening, there's going to be a light. So, possibly a picture of Christ here. So, even whenever it's evening, it's not fully evening necessarily because you have Christ, the light, shining forth as well. So, again, still in the realm of apocalyptic literature here. So, as you would read Revelation, you're reading this text here. That same hat being put on. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. So this goes back to Deuteronomy. I uh, forgot the Shema, the exact language of it, that they would repeat all the time. Let's see. The Lord our God, the Lord is one, from Deuteronomy 6, 4. 
again calling to mind that the Lord is one and his name one, that he will be king over all the earth, the new heavens and the new earth, as he's already reigning as king, though in a hidden way to our eyes. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimen, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site, from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate, to the corner gate, and from the tower of Hanel to the king's wine presses. So this laying low of the mountains and this lifting up of Jerusalem, and shall be inhabited For there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. So this new heavens, this new Jerusalem that will be ushered in, this new heavens, new earth here, never again again face this destruction, and we will dwell in security. And there shall be the plague. Almost out of time. Probably just do these. Last couple verses and then leave the last little bit for next week. And it shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Graphic imagery, so viewers warning. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. So those who would wage war against the people of God, those who are unbelievers... It'll be as though they are rotting as they're still standing. So we even still kind of see that today. I mean, you see, as you get over a certain age, even you're born and you're starting to die, starting to decay as you grow older. So you're already starting to kind of rot away as we stand. And so for those who are waging war against the people of God, they'll continue to rot away, and that's their end, is destruction. But we, as we rot away, yeah, our physical bodies rot away. We have a whole new life to look forward to. We have the life as we pass from death to life to look forward to. So though it looks like we're rotting away, we're in fact not rotting away in the least here. And so for those that are enemies of Jerusalem, though, it is already as though they are rotting and they will continue to rot as they go into utter destruction. And yeah, we'll probably end off there today. On a very cheerful note there, I mean, get some rotting away, but also we have that, that to look forward to, that we are, though we do die, we don't, in fact, die. we rather pass from death to life here. So this being for those that wage war against the people of God, that is their end is destruction, or rather ours is life. So we'll pick up and finish this book off next week. Probably in the first few minutes, we'll still have a little bit of difficult interpretation here to finish up Zechariah. And then we'll get into Malachi. Probably won't finish all of Malachi, given our pace for today. But then that means the following week, we'll probably have just a little bit of Malachi as we then get into Ezekiel following that. So, any last questions before we... I'm sure you guys probably do actually have questions of Zechariah that we just couldn't answer from earlier, but... With that, the Lord be with you.